Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific Nikoroi Hawkins. Coming up, we may be played uh, later on by then. The fact that the rich will dictate the composition of parliament. Political drama unfolding in Tonga with two successful election petitions so far. The last time any significant work was done was the point that the Italian builders discovered there was no more money. A troubled hotel development in the Cook Islands could be headed in a new direction. And Pacifica families are calling for better cultural understanding for funerals and the future COVID-19 responses. Political drama is unfolding in Tonga, where two MPs are on the verge of losing their seats. Successful election petitions filed against the former Prime Minister, Pohiva Tuyonetua, and Internal Affairs Minister, Sangsta Saulala, found both men guilty of bribing voters while campaigning for the election last year. Rulings on five more election petitions are still pending. The next one against Tongatapu 1 MP, Tevita Puloka, is due Friday. Finau Funua reports. Both recent successful election petitions were filed by members of Tonga's former ruling political party, Patoa. The one against Minister Sangster Saulala was filed by rival candidate Piveni Piukala, who lost out in the contest for the Tongatapu No. 7 constituency. Piveni Piukala says they filed the petitions in the interest of upholding the integrity of the election. We decided to challenge not because we have any vendetta against a successful candidate or other candidates. It's just because there were a very strong concern. If this is the norm, if this is what we uh, we left for the future, so our children and our and their grandchildren, uh, we may be playing uh, later on by then. The fact that the rich will dictate the composition of parliament. Both Saulala and Dui Onitoa have appealed the court rulings against them. If upheld they will not only lose their seats, but also be barred from contesting an election for five years. The drama has stirred up a storm of debate among Tongans on social media. Some of the conversation points out that last year's election results show both Saulala and Dui Onetoa registered comfortable wins in their respective constituencies. Others question the proportionality of the court decisions because of the petty nature of the charges. For example, the two acts of bribery which Saulala was convicted for include a $43 gift to one witness and a gift of $8 and a box of chicken to another. Saulala admitted giving cash to the witnesses but said he had a close relationship with their families. A Tongan community leader in New Zealand, Melino Maka, says gifts of food and cash are a frequent custom in Tonga, and the court rulings made it difficult to distinguish the difference between the gestures and bribes. If you go to a funeral and give a, a donation to the, the family of uh, bereavement, you know, it's, you know, does that come under the same thing? And, and, and there's so many things, you know, if you go to a, to a wedding, you know, if you go to a, to a cover club, you know, leading up to the election, there should be the same um, scrutiny. In Dui Onetoa's case, he was found guilty of one charge of bribery regarding a promise of $21,600 made to a women's advocacy group. RNZ Pacific correspondent Galafi Moala says evidence in the court case 
contradicted Tui Onetoa's defense. When Tui Onetoa was questioned in the court case whether he knew about the funding, uh, he denied it. And then the the uh, plaintiff showed a video in, in which he was uh, happy, clapping hands during the announcements of, of the funding being given to the women. However, the more serious charges of bribery against Tui Onetoa and Saulala concerning the implementation of development projects were dismissed by the Supreme Court. Tui Onetoa was accused of unfairly influencing voters by building a wharf in a village shortly before the election. Justice Witten ruled that because the village fell outside the constituency of Tui Onetoa, it was unlikely to influence his constituents. A similar charge was also dismissed against Saulala. Biveni Bilkala expressed his frustration, saying the development projects were, in his opinion, clearly gifts meant to influence voters. Because all these gifts were given to general voters, they are not uh, in breach of this section. So uh, the judiciary let them go. But what you know what does not make sense to me is when you give a, a can of of coke to somebody and ask them to, 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 to vote for me and they convict him under this act. That's not make sense. Melino Maka says the inconsistencies clearly indicate the need for a review of the kingdom's electoral legislation to accommodate such dynamics of Dongan society as community donations which are a common feature in all electoral campaigns. He says it is important for people to remember that until 2010, when the late King Dubon Nima relinquished most royal powers, the kingdom was largely run by the monarchy. People need to, uh, to understand that democracy in Tonga is only about 11 years old. And, uh, there's, and, and perhaps this thing is um, a good reminder that uh, the rules need to be reviewed and, and to actually set, set the, you know, the cultural context in, into as far as the, the donation. And, because otherwise everything you do in Tonga leading up to the election will come under the same category. RNZ reached out to Saulala and Dui Onetoa for comment. So far, only Dui Onetoa has responded, saying he has been advised not to comment by his legal counsel. The COVID crisis seems to have steered a troubled hotel development in the Cook Islands in a different direction. The fiasco that was the huge five-star Vaimanga hotel development on Rarotonga fell over half-completed 30 years ago, when the backers lost the support of their Italian bankers. Ever since, the landowner, Paramount Chief Paariki, has been seeking other developers to finish the project, with governments continuing to push for a major hotel on the site. Now, as her lawyer, Tim Arnold, explains, the Mark Brown government is backing a very different scheme. He spoke with Don Wiseman and started by recounting some of Vaimanga's history. The last time any significant work was done on the property was the point that the Italian builders discovered there was no more money to be had from the Italian bankers. Since that time, um, there have been a range of initiatives. Perhaps the one that had the most work done on it, uh, I think there was a single unit or a couple of units that were completed by way of show or demonstration units, and there was a tidying up of the property. Uh, That would have been back 
gosh, in advance of the 2008 global financial crisis. And that was under a, an initiative that strategic finance, um, a failed New Zealand um, financial institution, was involved with. Since that time, the properties simply uh, sat and the only people that have gone on have been interested primarily in due diligence and checking um, the increasingly deteriorated nature of the buildings. Okay, so now a decision's been made that there won't be this grand hotel, but it'll be a multi-purpose site. What's going to happen to, to the remnants of that hotel? I guess... First and most importantly, the turning point came in the early part of last year, which is to say that my client, Pa, during her entire time holding this Adiki title, has been told by successive governments that this title land will be hosting a four or five star, 200 room hotel managed by a branded international hotel operator. That was the expectation. Public money was represented by those improvements, and she could and would have done other things. Think a university, think longer term accommodation, think any number of uses that have been put to her over the years. But on each occasion, the government of the day has come back and said, no, it needs to be such a hotel. What has happened as a result of COVID is that the equation has been inverted completely. So in recent years, there has been a mounting concern that if this hotel were to be completed in the manner that government envisaged, that it would pose real sustainability issues in terms of the number of tourists and the demand um, for labour to staff it. And if those were problems before COVID struck, coming off the back of COVID with our migrant uh, workforce seriously depleted, the thought that this property at any time in the short to medium term would become a property competing for rooms and for staff with the rest of the tourism infrastructure, it's simply a non-starter. The other thing that has become apparent to all of us is that although the Cook Islands economy by Pacific standards has been pretty successful, you only need to look at the dramatic drop in our GDP relative to other Pacific Island countries um, to realise that the Cook Islands economy was a one-horse show, if that's the right phrase. In other words, all our eggs were not simply in the tourism basket, but they were in a a particular kind of short-stay model that um, collapsed entirely when um, COVID um, came along. And so The government, to its credit, has seen an opportunity to do three things. Firstly, it has seen an opportunity to take this property off the market as posing a direct threat to everyone else that is trying to rebuild as we come off the back of COVID. Secondly, it has seen through a mixed-use development, and in particular, embracing the idea that around timeshare and other ownership models where people see themselves as owning a piece of the property and spending more time than perhaps seven days, 11 days or whatever, that we can de-risk the economy. Because what we discovered in 2020, when the borders closed, that we came to know a whole heap of people that were, were here on a more leisurely time frame. They were here for a month, they were here for two months, maybe some of them were here for three months. But those people stayed 
Um, there wasn't an attraction um, going anywhere else. We were happy that they stayed and they were part of managing the economy at a time when everyone else had left. And so there's a feeling that we de-risk our tourism-based economy if we can host those sorts of people. So what we found is that we're able to look at um, those sorts of people. And the third thing that the government uh, has realized is that through this particular developer, uh, it's a local businessman, Chris Vale, who's lived here since the mid-70s. He's had a long established track record. Um, People on this island know him by a couple of uh, nicknames, but one of them is Hot mix, which tells you that he's been laying roads for the last 40 years here in the Cook Islands as required. And in 2020 and through 2021, as part of the program of public works to keep um, the economy going, there was a lot of road building up. So the idea that that money paid to this developer is now not going to be spent overseas, it's not going to sit in his bank account, but instead is going to be used on this big project that will stimulate the economy once more um, kind of ticks all the boxes. When are you going to have people, the first paying customers in there, do you think? Well, let me just share with you two things. Chris Vale asked me what I thought of him becoming involved. And I said two things. Firstly, he was mad. And secondly, um, that it would kill him. But I also said to him that if he couldn't do it, nobody could do it. He's got an established track record of thinking outside the box, doing things on an avoidable cost basis. And he is a man in a serious hurry. And I would not be surprised at all if the accommodation block that he's currently working on is ready and open for business in advance of what it is he's told my client. He's told my client that he would expect to get that open um, around the end of next year. But um, having said that, This is a man who is on the property and he's got his men working on the property continuously, huge amounts of money being spent there. And uh, he does not at this point have the security of a confirmed lease. So this is the air of hurry. And I have to say, this is the air of goodwill between my client and the developer that I think is going to be key to getting this thing moving. New Zealand's first qualified Pacific Island funeral director is calling for better cultural understanding if there's ever a return to lockdown restrictions. Esetna Tupu says grieving Pacific communities have faced extremely harsh times during the pandemic. Lydia Lewis has the story. Dad went into hospital Thursday and he had collapsed. When we got up to the ward, he left us within 20 minutes. And that was really hard because my two brothers weren't able to be there in his final moment. This Auckland woman, who we will call Sina, hopes the health authorities can learn from her family's heartbreak. When we are Malanga Fauso, rest in peace. Her father had lung disease. When he caught COVID, his family knew there was a real risk of infection and losing him. Restrictions in mid-March meant a limit of 100 people for his funeral. That may seem doable for some, but for a large extended family, it was a hard ask. Dust to dust. 
Esetā Tupu has been in the business of embalming for more than 20 years. He says pandemic restrictions hit many families very hard, and all the while they were grieving. They weren't even allowed to touch them, kiss them, hug them, say goodbye to them, especially one of the most important parts, you know, times of people's lives, saying farewell to their loved ones. Especially when you have uh, one relative passing away one week and then the following week someone close to the relative passing away also. He believes cultural differences for funeral rites should have been taken more seriously over the last two years. The chief executive of the Funeral Association, Gillian Boyce, agrees. We would hate to see families having to go through a situation again where they weren't allowed a funeral at all. 91 Pacific peoples have died across the country after contracting COVID-19. Mr Tatupu says wait times for burials have been felt deeply among Pacific communities. We commit your body to the ground. Purewa Cemetery and Crematorium General Manager Alistair Crombie says it is evident larger families were affected by the restrictions, tussling with limits on numbers. We had to basically be policemen. You know, we felt for our customers, we felt for those that had wanted to have their traditional funerals and were unable to. So um, there was quite a lot of strain on staff and, and for funeral directors as well. Senate now hopes authorities will specifically include Pacific cultures in the next COVID-19 resurgence plan. The main focus has been on COVID so much that they've had to put that to the side a little bit. There just should be a little bit more compassion, especially when it comes to the final moments of, you know, um, of of family members. Health officials have been asked to come up with a plan to cope with a new variant or outbreak. At the current orange setting and green, there are no limits for funerals in Samoan, Falelawa Singer. A spokesperson from the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet says a move back to the red setting would mean a 200-person limit on indoor gatherings. That brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Lukimufala next time more.